Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How y'all doing? Getting through the week, huh? I hope we are uh, prioritizing self-care. Tons of self-care, right? It's not too late. If not, get it in tonight. Every single day we're doing self-care. We're doing some rest, whether it's just sitting down and chilling, turning things off, going for a walk, right? We're also doing something that gives us pleasure and joy, whether it's just eating some ice cream, stopping on the way home, getting some takeout or delivery, whatever it is. It's just going to give you a little, a little smile, right? Whew, we got to do that. I know that's how we kind of remind ourselves. Um, got a great show planned for you, though. We're going to talk about compatibility. What? I know. And some startling research that is surprising or isn't surprising. I wish it wouldn't be impactful, but it is for some as to what it is that keeps uh, the healthiest, happiest relationships going. And then later in the show, we're going to talk about the importance of uh, solo sexuality. So stick around for that. A uh, couple interesting things going on in the news. First one is Spain. Now, China had done a, a pilot project to see what would it be like if you reduced the working week to uh, four days a week and also... Uh, I think it was six hours instead of eight, and it was exponential growth and enhancement. Uh, the work, the employees' mental health increased. They felt happier, and also productivity um, went went further, which is all a lot of corporate cultures care about is productivity, and showed it it did better. Um, so that's reasonable. That's meaningful. Now, Spain is launching a trial of a four-day working week. Yes, their government agreed to a proposal to allow companies to test reduced hours. Spain could become one of the first countries in the world to uh, do the four-day working week. I love this. Um, again, uh, they're reducing it down from uh, 40 to 32 hours. And um, New Zealand had the idea, Germany, and they're saying this article that uh, it's gaining globally. People getting involved in this. It's part of mental health, fighting climate change, uh, also trying to get people away from burnout. I mean, that's amazing. Think about that. If you're just thinking about productivity, well, it enhances it, <laughs> right? Um, why not Why not focus on people's mental health? You know what I mean? Huh, so I'm all for that. And this kind of ties into the next article. You know, what was interesting is a lot of people that have disabilities weren't allowed to get accommodations, whether it's having meetings over Zoom or having things more audio driven or even working from home. And there's a lot of articles saying it's funny 
how uh, COVID and quarantining has shown that a lot of people's jobs can exclusively do be done from home and accommodations are possible. And total industries have been revamped. Why were we not able to offer that to uh, people that are disabled? More importantly, let's continue to. Let's realize, educational system, that some people can go to school from home, as evidenced by everyone going to school online right now, and you're all still gonna hand out those degrees and take those diplomas seriously. Well, let some people who have disabilities or cannot come into class have their class education done via Zoom from home. Put all, make, make your classes streaming. That's awesome. Employers, if people can work from home, let them. Let them. You'll save rent and office space. You know, less sick days. People aren't giving it to each other. You know, people that are immunocompromised, let them work from home so they're not coming and picking up whatever, you know, everyone's running around giving. I mean, this is beautiful. This, is, this should be the changes we offer. So although there's been some downsides to the quarantine, some of it's been just a reminder that we need to, you know, expand on the options we offer. And also, I think it'd be great if we were shrinking down to a four-day work week, six hours, you know, shrink that bad boy down, give people more, more personal time. I know for me, when the weekend comes, I'm like, okay, weekend's here, but I also need to do laundry, go grocery shopping, clean my house, try to see everyone before I jump back on the hamster wheel. And some of that still overflow from work during the work week. It's like, like when am I off the clock, right? And I feel like a lot of people are thinking that. So that's why changing the work week would benefit everyone exponentially. And finally, we're looking at a new article that's saying that half of all single people, half, don't even want a relationship. Ah, they've seen it. They're like looking at the way it's been done before them. They're like, ah, no good. And that's because people haven't had good relational skills thus far. People have seen relationships as about you know, funny enough, we'll be talking about this in our next segment, but not necessarily being in a relationship with someone you like, you know, people run their relationships real toxically. And so the younger generation is like, why would I want to step into that? So a new survey reveals that half of single people don't want a romantic relationship. They don't even want to go on a date. They're like, I'm good. We're more community centered. A lot of people have their needs met with their friends and hookup culture. They're like, I'm getting all my needs met. Hookup culture, my community, my social network. I don't need to uh, apply labels and structures and rules. I'm just going to kind of like live my life. And I think that's great. The results are consistent with trends observed for more than a decade in many countries and cultures around the world. We have the highest rate of singledom right now. And that's not because there's something wrong with people. It's because there's something wrong with the way people are running relationships that it's not sounding like a good idea for them. People who've been divorced or widowed are especially more unlikely to seek new relationships. And uh, among both men and women, the top reason cited for disinterest is also that they're too busy. Now, that is a commentary on a capitalist culture where uh, people aren't making a living wage. They cannot get a one bedroom in any city off the minimum wage. So people are having to work more hours and more jobs because of student loans, not getting the needs met, not getting health care covered. And so that's a problem with the system. So people are upset about all this singledom. We have to work on changing the system so people don't have to work as much. And then maybe they'll actually have the time and energy and interest in dating. Some people are like, when would I even do that? I'm burnt out. I can't even give. I have nothing to give anyone. That's why people maybe don't want kids either. It's part of all that. We'll keep talking about it, but coming up next, we're going to be talking about compatibility, its importance, and the downfalls, and then later we're going to talk about solo sexuality, so uh, stick around. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveland IG page in the DMs. We'll be uh, answering some of those questions and closing out the show that way. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Radio.com. All right, we're back, and we're talking about compatibility. Whew, I could talk about this endlessly. Um constantly something I'm needing to remind people and bring up again. And this was coming out of an article and 
it was just such an interesting back way into the topic. It was an article where it said um, it was about someone exploring and talking about why they decided to stay with someone who didn't share the same value system they shared. And I thought, what an interesting topic to talk about, because I think that there's some really beautiful wider implications. You know, the research in couples and marital therapy that looks at what are the traits that long-term successful, happy relationships and marriages have. The number one thing is that they have a friendship. And what that means, I, I don't think that's the best word because I think people can misunderstand what that means and inherently like de-eroticize the relationship. What it means is they they like each other. And that that shouldn't be such a, um, a, a surprising thing or that shouldn't sound as simple as it is because unfortunately, we live in a culture where a lot of people are in relationships with people they don't like. And for anyone that's not relating to that, let me give you some examples that I've heard and consistently hear. I was watching a TV show last week and one of the hosts said, yeah, thank God for golf. It saved my marriage because my husband's never home. Okay, that's a sign of someone who's in a relationship, uh, a marriage of years with someone that they don't like, someone they don't have a friendship with. Um, I don't know why they stay in it, probably because it's easier or at their age they're afraid of being single again or the financial benefits, I don't know. But the point was they are doing well because they don't spend time together. So they feel like we gotta have this marriage, so um, let's not be around each other so as to have this thing that we're misusing and don't really even understand its purpose. Because we shouldn't have a marriage or relationship just to have one, we don't need them. We should want them because of what can occur within them. But that's an example of someone not liking their partner. Here's another example. When you hear people always putting down, mocking or rolling their eyes about their partner. Yeah, my boyfriend's a jerk, da da da. Well, wow you kind of sound like a jerk too because you're talking that way about your partner, but you're also choosing to allow and stay in that. And again, that's just not a conversation about why people don't leave. I understand why. That's There's a lot of trauma in that. There's a lot of other reasons, but just staying with the theme that that's been normalized where some people are like, yeah, I know I get it. My wife's a nag, the old bull and chain. What? Why? Why? No, that should be shocking. That should be distressing to us. Like, Work on improving that marriage and relationship. Work on reorienting the way you relate to each other so you don't feel trapped or get out. But we actually have normalized not being friends with our partners. And one of the number one things that comes in my office when clients are struggling with a conflict is that to remind them, you're on the same side. You're on the same team. You're not enemies. You're not opponents, right? But we have normalized not liking our partner. But the number one sign of success is that they like each other, they have a friendship. It smooths things over, they can laugh things off. They love each other, they're holding hands, they're still being sexual. They still are attracted to each other, but attracted on levels that aren't just about chemistry and aesthetics. They actually enjoy spending time with each other. They look forward to getting on the phone or seeing them at the end of the day or going to dinner. They enjoy each other, and if not, that, then you have to ask yourself, why am I in this? What am I? What is it I'm trying to do? Am I just trying to pull this thing off so I can check that box because I feel like that's what's needed to be an adult or healthy or successful? Like really question your reasoning for doing that because you don't have to do it. A lot of marriages need to end. A lot of relationships need to end. I'm okay with the divorce rate being as high as it is because that's a sign that people are leaving when it's not working. Try to do the work get into some couples therapy, try to be better, read some books, but if not, get out. Not every relationship is meant to go on forever and the success of a relationship is not rooted in the length of time it exists. It's often a good sign that they're ending. We have to stop shaming people for being in multiple relationships or being married many times. Great, they leave when they need to. That could be a positive sign. That's not always bad. And I'm writing an article on the toxic forms of monogamy that we've also normalized. And that's also a reason why a lot of marriages end is because people aren't running them in a healthy way, AKA 
not liking or being kind with the person in a relationship. So let's just start there. If you're married or in a relationship with someone, be kind. And if not, be better. Do better. It is not acceptable to negatively impact a relationship or person. It is not acceptable for someone's life to be made harder because you're in it. Make your presence in someone's life in whatever the way it is, make it a positive thing. Make it enhancing. Make their life better. Otherwise, you're being a really bad partner, friend, parent, colleague, whatever the word is, right? So let's start with that. We should not be settling for just being in a relationship because we think we need to have one and not assess the mental health within it. That's the first part. Second part is let's talk about all the different levels of compatibility. There's the physical There's the psychological, emotional, there's the social, and then what I added on, the ethical. We wanna have as many uh, layers of compatibility as possible, right? Because some of the other ones are gonna be on and off at times. But sexual chemistry or chemistry or attraction is not enough. And there's a lot of people that think that it is. I'm drawn to them, I enjoy them, sex is good, or I like affection, or I'm attracted to them, and we think that's enough. No, 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 see it's not. Especially if you want a long-term or monogamous relationship or to get married, we need more because that's not always gonna be there, or there's gonna be moments where it's not there for whatever reason. And we need to have these other elements to rely upon, but they take time. Compatibility takes time to assess. Chemistry is immediate. Are we drawn to them or are we not? Do we find them attractive or not? Compatibility is something that takes time to assess Um, because usually it's best shown in times of conflict. That's when we really see what happens when our personalities and our styles come together. How do we manage conflict? That's the number one way to show compatibility. And if you manage it poorly, do the work be better, or realize we are not compatible. We both have different perspectives, different conflict resolution skills, different ways of repairing, because just because two people wanna be together does not mean that they can. I've had to tell couples that. I get that y'all love each other, or there's a lot of chemistry and attraction and fire, but you are not compatible. Because let's start with the physical. How much closeness and touch do you want? That's the physical. Psychological is more of that, what happens when our personalities come together? Is there a lot of friction? Or is it smooth? Is it seamless? Do we enjoy sitting down at a table together? Do we have things to talk about? What about if we went for a walk? That's the psychological. And then some of the emotional is, you know, emotional accessibility. Can we talk deeply? Can we talk about our feelings? Right? That's when that shows up. Take a quick break and we come back and keep talking about this. Because this is something that we can use to be preventative and also something to help us maybe find a solution. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on radio.com. All right, we're back and we're talking about compatibility and how um, people don't necessarily break it down or really assess the different levels. And some people think if I'm attracted to not enough to someone or interested enough, it's all we need. It's like, nope, in the beginning, it's what brings you together, holds you together. But over the long haul, happiness is shown based on what kind of friendship you have. And what I mean by that is, do you like each other? Do you have things in common? More importantly though, it's not even always about having things in common as much as do you have respect for what the other person's interested in and who they are, whether you have things in common or not, at least value it and respect it and allow it, support it. Because again, relational health, mental health is, we're considering the impact we have on someone else's life. We've been brought into their life as their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their husband, whatever it is. Are you enhancing and making their life better? Or are you making it harder and more difficult? And, and compatibility is most shown in times of conflict. That's when we can really get a sense of what we're signing up for. How do we manage conflict? How do we manage repair? That's part of that emotional and psychological compatibility. That's important. How do we problem solve? And it takes time sometimes to get to those fights. But once the fights happen, I'm like, all right, now we can really assess compatibility. How do you fight? How do you communicate? What kind of repair do you do? And if that's not, a good, if that's not done well, work on it. Maybe get some help or 
It's not going to be good. And sometimes we don't handle it. And then resentment builds. And then we really have a problem when you're dug and trapped in resentment. That's hard to get out of. Now, the other things we want to assess is also social compatibility. Do we like to do the same kinds of things with our downtime, our free time, our weekends, our holidays? It's going to matter. It's going to matter. If you're sober and they drink, good luck on New Year's Eve. What's that going to be like? Right? If they're, they like to be around lots of people for holidays and you like something more private and, sol- and solitude-based, how's that going to go? Maybe they're more outdoorsy and you're indoorsy. Maybe you like to travel and they don't. These are the kinds of things that are social compatibility-based. Do they like to go to bars and clubs? Or do you prefer something quieter, coffee shop? These are all the kinds of things to talk about. And that's why I tell people in early dating, ask them, how do you spend your weekends? What's, what's New Year's Eve look like for you? You know, how much drinking do you do? These things matter. You know, I'm someone who doesn't drink. I'm also someone who's plant-based. So I only eat at vegan restaurants. I don't like bars and clubs. I don't drink. I'm a daytime morning person. And I want to make sure that they are as well. If they're like, yeah, I'm just a nighttime person. I'm up all night, sleep all day. Well, that's going to be a problem because that's when I'm out doing things. And I'm winding down when they're winding up. And if they want to spend a lot of time in the bars, that'll never work. I don't enjoy that at all. It's not my jam. I'd rather spend the weekends traveling. Do they have the finances to travel? Like these are all the things we have to think about if we're trying to build a committed, close relationship. But again, each level matters. We don't need to have all of them, but we want to have as many as possible. It can't just be attraction, right? Because again, if your personalities are well, well suited and you're psych, uh, psychologically and emotionally compatible, it might not matter if there's some social compatibilities because you're healthy enough to say, so listen, I'm indoorsy, you're outdoorsy. When you want some outdoor stuff, that's why you have friends. Hit your friends up, go hiking with your friends, camping with your friends, and they might say that's great. We'll do other things together because you don't always need to do everything together. And that's where it comes in about just having respect, right? If they like bars and you don't, cool. Then they can hit a bar or two on the weekends with their friends. Girls night out, boys night out, non-gendered friends night out, you know, group night out, friend community night out, whatever it might be. And that's part of you showing that you're compatible. You're healthy enough to say, I don't need to do everything with you. And I am supporting you going doing with other people, right? And then finally, ethical slash political compatibility. That matters. Matters now more than ever. I know personally, I can't date someone who's a bigot or prejudicial. I can never. I can never date someone who thinks other people's worth is up for debate if they're homophobic or transphobic or racist or think you know racist jokes are acceptable. It would never work for me. I can never date a Republican. It just would never work. That to me lacks integrity and ethics. You know, And so we do have to ask those questions. What would it mean if you dated someone who was a Trump supporter? right? And thinks that black lives don't matter. Is that going to work for you? When for me, it'd be, that'd be a no go. So for me, when the number one levels of compatibility that's important is the ethical and political. I need to know that you have compassion centered and that you think everyone is worth and that you believe in human rights. That'd be the number one thing. That's a deal breaker. And then after that, I move on to things like how are we on the other levels and try to get as close as possible. I'm in a relationship with someone where we are completely aligned in all those levels. It's really great. There's times where we're not but our other levels of compatibility are relied upon in those moments. And we, and we build on those strengths to make up for some of the deficits. And that's okay. But we're friends. Like that's the landing point. We're friends. We enjoy each other. We care about each other. We think about how, we are, how our decisions impact the other. We always come back together and talk. It's that friendship part. It's not too late if you don't have it, but start working on that friendship. Start liking each other, enjoying each other. Otherwise, what are you doing? Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, what's the purpose of your relationship or marriage, right? Think about that. And that's why sometimes we learn later in life or 
We were compatible on more levels initially, but as time went on, we drew, grew apart. That happens. That's not failure. It's success. Success is realizing that and working on it if you can, or realizing we can, and that's okay. We went in different directions. We're not meant to be together anymore romantically or sexually or whatever it is, and that's okay. That's a success. It's healthy to walk away from things that aren't working for you or in your best interest or mental health centered. More of that. Don't be afraid of that, right? That's health. All right, y'all, coming up next, we're going to slide into some DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. Always here to hear from you. And then later in the show, we're going to talk about solo sexuality, the importance of it, the relevance of it, and also how it impacts partnered sexuality. So definitely stick around for that. You are listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back, and now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. All right, tonight's question says, hey, Dr. Chris, um, I'm starting to feel a lot of anxiety. I live in California. Everything's opening up again. While this time seems different, my, my anxiety is at an all-time high. Is there anything I can do to calm my nerves as we get out of the pandemic? Oh, my gosh. A lot of people are bringing that up. Uh, I'm working with people around the country right now because of the relaxed... Oh, rules and regulations around, you know, offering teletherapy, which is a really great thing. And everyone's having their different levels of anxiety because some people have been living in locations that have really never mandated mask use um, or have completely reopened. And they're feeling kind of overwhelmed. They're saying both, how do I move through the world feeling safe when people are following no precautions, right? But also they're talking about the anxiety of still maybe following the precautions when others aren't. So I always start there. Just because things are opening up again does not mean it's safe. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to jump in beyond your level of comfort. If you're not ready or comfortable, honor that. Be where you are. Uh, as soon as things open up here fully, because I'm in California as well, as well, they're opening up slowly. I'm not just jumping in because it's open. I'm going at my own pace. And I'm still wearing a mask. And I will. Even for a while, if, if they were to uh, remove the mask mandate tomorrow in California, I'd still wear mine because I'm not comfortable sharing space with people yet because I'm aware that the infection rate is still is still a thing. People are still getting infected. We've had a 10% increase in people between the ages of 10 and 17. There's two new variants here in California. We should have anxiety. It's a healthy, natural response. We, we don't wanna get rid of a healthy, natural response. Be anxious. There's something anxiety-inducing happening around us, and that anxiety will lead you to protect yourself. So move at your own pace. That's the answer. There's nothing else you can do. Wear your mask. Only spend short amount of time indoors. You know when grocery shopping and otherwise, if you're going to see anyone, it's outdoors, six feet apart, small period of time with a mask. That's what I'm doing. I'm not following the the, the local government or state regulators. I'm following the CDC, and they're still saying wear your damn mask, follow protocol, even while completely vaccinated. So that's also I'd say get your vaccinations, get online, get registered get them that will help ease some of that. But I want people to be where they're at. I will continue to wear a mask when I'm not feeling comfortable and I'm not going to be ready to be around crowds for a very long time. I know people are saying, oh, we might have concerts going again by this summer, this fall. I won't be there. I absolutely will not be returning to indoor or even outdoor crowded events for maybe not even well into mid of next year because that does not feel safe to me. I don't want to risk getting an infection like that or passing along, period, end of story. I mean, I never really enjoyed crowds. <laughs> um, I was always a little more cautious anyway, so it suits me in some ways, but be where you are. Go at your own pace. There's a real threat. And the, you know, I even expand that out beyond the topic of COVID and pandemic. Some people have social anxiety. Some people are more introverted. Some people are sober. 
You know, sober people don't need to go to spaces that involve a lot of drinking or drug use. You're allowed to say no or pop in, leave when the purpose changes, when it goes from just connecting and spending time together at maybe a restaurant to partying and getting wasted. Then you leave or you don't go at all. Hey, unfortunately, I'm sober, so I don't attend events that involve drinking and drugging, right? People with social anxiety. You have a right to also say, hey, I, I thank you for inviting me. Unfortunately, it's not something I'm able to do. Or, yeah, I'm, I'll swing by. I probably will be able to stay about an hour. You kind of frame it and you leave when you're feeling uncomfortable. Your mental health matters just as much as whatever the event is. Um, and if you're not ready to get back out there, don't. Don't let people pressure you. Don't let people say, oh, well, you know, all's well now because things are open. No, that's, that's maybe, that's more of a, you know, economic situation, which is understandable. I understand a lot of people need to get back to work and their businesses are suffering. So I'm not slamming opening, but be where you are. Participate only to the level you have to. I'm absolutely doing that. I'm still doing work from home. And uh, even with uh, the vaccinations happening and my own vaccination, I'm still working from home because of risks and regulations, you know? So be where you are. All right, y'all, coming up next, we're going to be talking about solo sexuality and uh, dun, 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 masturbation. That's right. Uh, it impacts our general sexual health, self-esteem, but also it impacts our relational health and our relational sexuality. So we're going to be breaking that on down and then doing some more DMs and uh, love line. If you want some past episodes, go on over to wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for my face, click on it, and there you go. There's past shows. Maybe check out some of the other shows while you're there. But if you've got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page. Any question you have, ask us. Always confidential, always anonymous. We're here for you whatever you're wondering about most likely someone else is also wondering about it um uh, also just a quick reminder self-care have you done any yet today if not still time a little more rest some joy and pleasure listening to love line with dr chris on the new channel q and radio.com All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about masturbation, aka solo sexuality. And so much to say about this topic. It's a topic that I think a lot of people think there isn't much to say. You just do what you do. But um, it, it's a, it's, it's a, it, there's a, a massive psychological component to all of this. So let's kind of unpack it for a while. First thing is, remember, for some people, solo sexuality is more of their uh, sexual orientation. Not everyone's orientation sexually or their arousal patterns or habits are drawn, geared towards, or about connection or engagement with another person. Sometimes it's back towards self. It's sex with self. So for some people, masturbation is um, something that they do in between times. Uh, but for others, masturbation is more of their total sexuality. And so let's talk about why that is. Well, most people's first sexual experience is with themselves and that that's meaningful. We enter our sexuality from that place. So it's always interesting to ask ourselves, what was our first sexual experience like with ourselves or even the duration of it, you know, in earlier life? Was it about getting it done quickly as quick as possible? Be very silent, get it done quick. Don't let anyone know. Rush, 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 hide it, have shame. For many people, yeah, especially if they were maybe quote unquote found out, right? This thing that is healthy and, and, and normal and part of a, a developmental stage that most of us will go through. And so for some people, it's their total sexual expression. Isn't it interesting <clears throat> that we have so much shame about it, that we don't talk openly about it. Some people deny that they do it, right? We have to do it in such secrecy. Uh, I'm not advocating for uh, public masturbation, although for some people that is a meaningful part of their solo sexuality and they do it in consensual spaces, spaces where people do engage in you know, group masturbation. But 
earlier, early in our lives, um, that that's our entry point. So we we learn to kind of accommodate that. It, we make sex with ourselves only about something that we do quickly and quietly. And I'll work with some couples and I'll say, hey, have the two of you ever talked about your masturbation habits or patterns or what you like? And the bulk of them say, no, no, we never have. We have that much shame about it. Even with the person that maybe we have children with or we live with and we have sexual experiences with, they've seen us naked. Um, we've never necessarily either talked about our masturbation habits and patterns or even be seen or witnessed while masturbating. Mutual masturbation is such a beautiful element of sexuality and I recommend it for many couples. Couples that are sides, they're not a top, they're not a bottom, they're sides. They're not into penetrative sex. Not every person's into penetrative sex, right? And so for those people, sex is maybe more oral or manual or it's about mutual masturbation. And for them, that's their total sex life. And that's great because what is sex about? Pleasure, fun connection, arousal, none of that mandates penetration or even uh, touching another's genitals. And that's okay, right? We're about normalizing truth, authenticity, all these different ways of being sexual. So for most people, that's their first experience of sexuality is masturbation. And it's not a positive one. We don't talk about it openly. We, we talk about it as though it's something you do as a child or something you should hide or something you do if you can't find a partner or don't have one. None of that's true. Um, Sometimes the people that are having the most partnered sex tend to have the highest rates of masturbation as well. They just have a higher sex drive and that's okay. And that's why we love masturbation. For some people, like I said, it's their total sexuality. For some couples, it's coupled sexuality. For others, it's it's a part, it's a valuable part when you know it's really helpful for someone who has a higher sex drive than their partner. It's a way for them to still be sexual. Uh, for others, if we have a partner who's not into some of the things we're into sexually, masturbation is where we go to find those things. And, and often porn is uh, associated with it. That's great. That's a place where we can still, uh, within our monogamous commitment, maybe still have sex with others by, by engaging them on the screen, right? Or exploring different things that our partner is not interested in doing. That's the beauty of fantasy and porn is it's not always at all what we want to do in real life, right? So what someone fantasizes about or looks at in porn, that is not necessarily in any way a statement about what they want to do. For some people, the safety of porn and fantasy is why they go into these certain things. Because in real time, they don't want to deal with the sights, the sounds, the smells, or organizing it. And it only will ever exist in fantasy or porn. And that's great, right? That's a beautiful asset for that. So we don't want to shame it. But we want to look at our relationship to it. Because even with people being a little more confident in it, it's still often something we do secretly we rush. We don't say to a partner, hey, I'm going to go close the door and masturbate for a while. Or, hey, come join me or we, we make sure we're not found out. It's fascinating. So ask yourself, why? Why, do we, why are you hiding it? Why are you denying it? Why are you even maybe avoiding it? And there's maybe some really reasonable reasons, but ask yourself, are the reasons reasonable? Are you afraid of your body? Are you afraid of acknowledging your sexual? Are you afraid of acknowledging your sexual outside of sex with your partner? I agree, some of us are with partners that are made anxious by things like that, and they're not sexually or psychically mature enough to know that we have a sex life outside of them, but that's healthy. That's how we feel autonomous. That's the beauty of it again, is it reminds us that sex, that's why it's so feminist, is it's disconnected from our partner or a man. And for others, it's autonomy just reminding you that your sex is yours, your sexuality is under your control. And we can have solo sex and partnered sex. And I always tell people, your partner only gets to weigh in on within monogamous relationships, especially partnered sex. But your solo sex is for you. You don't need to share it, you don't need to explain it, you don't need to defend it. And you can also say to your partner, I'm not interested in you weighing in on it. I would love us to be in relationships where we can talk about it and express it openly, but not everyone's with a safe partner. So we do need to know that. But work towards getting there. And if you're the anxious 
anxious partner. Be better for your partner. Be the kind of person that can be open with them and acknowledge that they have a sex life without you with masturbation or fantasy, right? When we come back, we're gonna keep talking more about this and talk also about the ways we masturbate, how that might get in the way of the kind of partnered sex we wanna have. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. Right, we're back and we're talking about masturbation, aka solo sexuality. And I use that word solo sexuality because I think it gives it the uh, strength that it is meant to have, the, the respect it's meant to have, that it's a legitimate form of sexuality. We should call it solo sexuality. Masturbation can often be used to treat solo sexuality as something kind of throwaway or illegitimate or lesser than. And it's not. For some people, it's a really meaningful part. And remember, masturbation is for self-soothing. It's, for, it's a great coping mechanism. Had a rough day? Masturbate. Anxious? Masturbate. For a lot of people, it's a way to settle their body. For many, it's a way to get back in our bodies. Remember, arousal masturbation is a right brain activity. It is the exact same thing that we get from reading, from yoga, from meditating, from daydreaming, from laying in the bath. They're all appropriate. They're all great forms of self-care. But notice, it's the rare person enlisting forms of self-care where they also mention masturbation, sexual arousal, sexual release. It's a way to get to a transcendent mind space. And that's where tantric practices come in. It's about connecting to the divine, a union with God, something higher than yourself, a deeper connection with your partner, a deeper connection into yourself, seeing ourself reflected back, right? But porn's great. But we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about the beauty of porn. We'll do that in another segment. I just want to stick with masturbation because I want us to legitimize it, right? I want us to not be afraid of it and not be afraid of our partner's sexuality. But I also wanted to talk for a second about the fact that what we masturbate to and how we masturbate does impact uh, our relationships and our partnered sexuality. And what I mean is this. For many people, the sex that they have most is sex with themselves. And what we practice, we become. And we're already a very disembodied uh, body negative culture. We uh, force ourselves from birth to sit still, which is not body positive. It's actually quite body negative. Your body might have more energy or more needs. And it's like, nope, you got to sit still and you got to sit straight up. So basically from the door, we're trained to ignore our body's needs. We have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. So I'm looking at you, school. You're going to hear a lot of school issues. We don't even we can't even listen to our natural, natural body cues and go to the bathroom when we need to. Sometimes we're told no. When we're hungry, we can't always eat when we want. Again, body negative, being trained out of our body's natural cues of hunger, of needing to go to the bathroom, of even needing rest. Nah, pull together your work, drink more coffee. All these things are body negative. We don't honor our bodies. And then, again, again I'm not saying these things are, are bad, what I'm about to say. I need to get the caveat, but I'm pointing out that they're often rooted in body negativity. Uh, things like yoga, going to the gym, dance. People will manipulate and force your body to do it one way, the right way, a specific way. That's not body positive. That's not honoring your body. It's being forced into. And maybe your body isn't comfortable with that position or that motion. Or maybe your body's tired. Or maybe it's triggering trauma. And instead of honoring your body, they're told this is the right way to do it. This is the right way to move it. This is the right way to hold it. I understand that there's a place for that. I understand that people want you to not get injured. I'm not denying that. There's a place. But I'm also just pointing out that we live in a very body negative world, very disembodied. Disembodied is not listening and eating when you're hungry, eating what your body's asking. It's not taking naps when you need to because you're at work or you're at some kind of family event and you just can't. And I understand that that's part of socialization. I get it. But it's still very body negative, right? Also, people that have a penis, we're, all, we're always pulling our pelvis up and in, away, so we're not bumping into things. And it's very gendered, right? Where people that are male, male-identified, we often are very uncomfortable and not in our hips. And partnered sexuality often requires us to be in our hips, to have open hips, fluidity. 
but our hips are very rigid. If I say to someone who's male, especially straight males, let me see you move your hips, show me some fluidity. They're embarrassed even publicly to move their hips. A lot of guys are afraid to dance or to be in their hips. At trainings, I'll say if there's any any men in the audience, especially straight identified men, stand up and show us you move your hips. Uncomfortable, discomfort, not familiar. A lot of females, more comfortable. Gay men, often a little bit more comfortable. So there's gender, there's some homophobia, there's some toxic masculinity, right? So what happens is the positions we masturbate in for all bodies tend to be what we expect or what's familiar or what's easiest for us to orgasm. Now, for those that have issues with not orgasming in the ways they want, part of that work is looking at the way you're masturbating. Are you masturbating and getting your body most familiar and comfortable with orgasming in positions or ways that can't be transferred or done by a partner? If you're getting off by having the shower come down on your body, right, for people that are, I can't necessarily say these body terms because of radio rules, but if you're a female um, I guess it really doesn't matter. I don't even know how to say these things. Let me just put it like this. If the pressure and the positions are not able to be transferred over to a partner because you use the faucet in your tub or always with a vibrator, right? Or um, always moving your hand and holding your pelvis still, which is how some people masturbate. Their lower body doesn't move, but their hand does. That's not how sex with a partner often works if you're the dominant top. Think about that. Or if someone's pleasuring you, they're not always able to do it in the positions or the speed or pressure with which the shower faucet might or a toy. Yeah, we can fold toys in. That's awesome. But I'm just talking. It's not always directly transferable. So I tell people, hold your hands still and instead thrust and move your hips because that's more natural of how we do with a partner, right? So we have to find ways. We We want to think about that. Also, in our masturbation practices, most of us only use our genitals, right? Our whole body has a capacity of providing pleasure for us, but yet we go right to the genitals. Where, where, If you're using one hand, what's your other hand doing? Use your other hand to touch other parts of your body. If you're using a vibrating toy only on what is normally deemed to be your sexual anatomy, what if you ran that on your thighs, on your chest, on your arm, in different areas of your body? Those vibrations and that pressure will also feel good. So it's about expanding out and using our full bodies, which is where great partnered sex can happen. We don't just go for the genitals. We're kissing and touching on people's entire bodies, but we can start to practice that with masturbation, getting away from it just being genitals, the goal just being to orgasm and being as quiet and stiff as possible. But instead we're vocalizing, we're moving our bodies, right? We're being more honest and authentic. That's body positivity, that's sex positivity. So we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about masturbation because it has powerful, ex, uh, expansive components, transformative components for us psychically, our psyche, our body, but also relationally. And this is where I love using sex as an entry point. So stick around. We're going to talk more about that. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, we're talking about solo sexuality, what we often call masturbation. And to kind of bring you back to what we're talking about, we're talking about how it's our first experience with sex for many people. And it's done secretly, quietly, quickly. No one knows, no one can find out. And then if we are found out or even asked, we lie, we deny. Even with people that we're friends with or partners, we should be able, sex positivity is recognizing that with consent, of course, we can talk openly about our sexual selves because that's one of the most 
that's one of the most intimate, honest parts of ourselves. That's when I actually feel really known when I can talk to my friends or my partner about my sexuality, things that turn me on. But that requires us being with a mature partner. So I wanna challenge everyone, be that mature partner. Don't personalize the acknowledgement that your partner has a sex life that won't always include you or can't. It doesn't need to. Sex is everywhere, it's everything. It's what we wear, it's how close we stand to people. It's things that make us smile. It's anything that draws our attention. Libidinal energy is woven into everything. It's not just sexual energy. It's excitement, it's passion, right? And just, even if we're in a monogamous relationship, we can take that sexual energy from something that we see or something we talk about or think about. We can take that home and use that with our partners or with ourselves. And we're talking about using our body to practice sexuality that we can bring to our partners sometimes. Uh, you know, the beautiful part of masturbation and solo sexuality is that it's just us for us. And we get to close out the rest of the world and our partners. It's private. We don't have to explain that to our partners if we don't want. I want us to be in a relationship where we could if we wanted to, but we don't have to. You get to say, hey, that's for me. Because no matter what your relationship is, married, monogamous, or otherwise, you get to have privacy and boundaries. You get to say, you know what, that's for me. I'm going to keep that for myself, which is really powerful for different people with different identities that are marginalized and exploited to have that special space. It's very feminist. It's disconnected from the need of a partner, especially maybe someone who's male identified. It's a beautiful part of masturbation. It's, it's our autonomy. Now, we also want to have sex in ways, though, that we can bring our partner into it, where for some people, they never move their hips, right? People that are penis owners, maybe masturbation is constantly holding your body still, but just using your hand or a toy on yourself. That isn't how sex with a partner is. So what would it be like if you held the toy or your hand still and just use your hips and thrust? That is why some people struggle to maintain erections or to orgasm with a partner because they've trained themselves and practiced with themselves, which is maybe their most common sex partner, their self, to do it in a certain way that their partner can't do. The partner can't move themselves up and down on you like you might practice masturbation. And for people that have that aren't penis owners, um, for vulva and vagina owners, you might be having sex with pressures and speeds that aren't transferable. How can we bring a partner into that or that into sex with a partner if we choose to? It's just something to think about. And often when we masturbate, just like when we have sex with a partner, we often stay as quiet as possible, not letting ourselves moan or make noise or talk. Start letting that happen with masturbation. What would it mean if you were fully embodying and vocalizing talking out loud, talking to yourself, letting yourself make sounds of pleasure. And you weren't holding your body still. You weren't necessarily focusing on the male or female gaze and being attractive. You're just letting your body move with the natural rhythm, using your full body, knowing that your whole body is an erogenous zone, not just your genitals as we've defined them. And trying to touch, use both hands. You're using one hand, what's your other hand doing? Grab something, touch another part of your body, other layers of stimulation right? Because our masturbation practice is usually what best determines our partnered sexuality. People don't see the connection. It's very powerfully connected. What we practice in masturbation is a powerful part of who we become sexually. So really practice being fluid, right? Um, practice being more open, and then you can transfer that over. But a quick note also on the porn and fantasy. We're reinforcing and, and we're reinforcing our arousal being tied to specific body types and experiences and behaviors. That's why I really recommend more feminist body positive porn. You're not seeing quote unquote perfect or gym bodies as we've culturally defined it. You're seeing all sorts of bodies giving and receiving pleasure. All sorts of body shapes and sizes. Anatomy coming in different shapes and sizes. Watching porn that mimics people having to talk about safer sex practices using condoms. Watch porn that has people losing and gaining erections or female 
female presenting, female identified, people being dominant, where in straight scenarios or hetero scenarios, the male gets to be a bottom because not all men are tops. Some men are passive in their bottoms and the female's dominating. Or you're seeing multiple genders coming together, large bodies, smaller bodies. Start to practice expanding your arousal by watching diverse kinds of porn, not the same old cis, hetero, penetrative, man's a top, the goal is just penetration and orgasm. Everything goes swimmingly because that's not what it really looks like. So watch things that have foreplay, full-bodied. They're getting, out, they're getting outside of gender roles. Honest, healthy, authentic sex isn't tied to gender roles. We're not hung up on what I'm supposed to do as a man or a woman, right? It doesn't matter if I'm a mom or a lawyer. I'm getting away from respectability politics. I'm just being present in my body. That's body positivity, letting your body do what it wants to do, the shapes, the sounds, the smells, right? That's sex positivity too. But we're often not trying to do that. We're often in our head about how do I look? How do I sound? What does my partner think about me? Would they take me seriously? It's like, oh my God, get all of that noise out of our heads. And we practice that with our masturbation, right? It's important stuff. We'll keep talking more about it. I also want to talk soon again about the uh, benefits of porn, what it can bring to us. Um, coming up next though, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveland IG page. Always happy to hear from you. Always here to answer your questions, whatever they are, rooted in anything psychologically based or sex-based, relational. Um, and if you want to check out past episodes of Loveline, as always, you can do so by going to wearechannelq.com. Scroll down, look for my face, click on it's all there. Stick around. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back. Now it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. Tonight's question says, hey, Dr. Chris, I have a question about pronouns. I got introduced to someone for the first time, and without knowing their pronouns, I called them a her. I called them her. Uh, they got really upset with me, and I apologized. But how was I supposed to know how they identified without being told? They introduced themselves as Ashley. I felt bad, still feel bad. How can I prevent this from happening? I love this question because it's rooted in care and compassion. People make mistakes and most of us understand that. Um, it's still something we're learning, which is to ask about pronouns. So a couple things, how you can help is by first starting on a macro level, just really continuing to press upon the wider world that pronouns matter and that they're a part of mental health and that every single person, cis or trans or non-binary, needs to really focus on that. So. Start by putting your pronouns in your bio everywhere. I have my pronouns in my email signature and on all my social media platforms. It's a way to remind people that this is a thing, that it matters, that it counts, and gets people to start thinking about it. Every time they encounter that in someone's profile, they're reminded, oh yeah, this exists. This is something to consider. Second, start getting familiar asking. If you're going to use a pronoun, you have to ask them what their pronouns are. What are your pronouns? We have to familiarize and normalize asking that. We cannot assume based on someone's name or their gender presentation, that doesn't necessarily communicate what their pronouns are. Being non-binary, right, or of whatever pronoun is not necessarily an indication of what we can expect their presentation to look like. They're not always connected. Some non-binary people can present at times as what would look to be she or he, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's who they are. So we wanna always ask pronouns, but again, the way we do that is on a macro level, starting to always ask that of individuals. And on a micro level, we can do that by putting our pronouns in our bios, and even when we introduce ourselves. I know it sounds clunky and weird to some people, that's where we live in, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, we have to learn people's names, we have to learn people's pronouns. You know, it's a sign of respect. 
right? It's like when you enter someone else's culture and you're trying to understand them or even in a relationship, understanding someone's love language and who they are and what their triggers are. So we have to start introducing ourselves, you know, using, using our pronouns, putting them next to our name whenever our name is requested or utilized. That's how we get people thinking about it, acknowledging it, familiarizing with it, normalizing. That's the work. So I'm glad you apologized. Always apologize. Most people are, are understanding. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what pronouns? What are your pronouns? And then you say, I'll do better next time, you know. But, you know, that's what we got to do. So I'll continue to bring this up. I, I, I try to do segments on things like this, but it's what we got to do. We got to do that as trans allies, but also just as general change makers, you know. But I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you care because that's what's most important. People feeling respected. People just want to feel included, respected, seen, you know. And as long as you're doing that, all is well. Um, what was I going to say? I don't know, but... Uh, we got a great show tomorrow, so join us tomorrow. We're going to be talking about jealousy. Yes, a lot of theorists believe that jealousy is a socially constructed, created emotion rooted in these cultural cultural ideas of ownership. We think we need to own things and toxic individualism where we only worry about ourselves. So it's going to be a really interesting deep dive and exploration as to why jealousy exists, how we can battle it in ourselves and in our relationships so as to have more sustainable, healthier relationships because jealousy gets in the way of a lot of things. So join us for that. And if you got any DMs for us, drop them in our Loveline IG page in those DMs. Always confidential, always anonymous. And if you want to check out more episodes of Loveline, you can do so by going to wearechannelq.com. Scroll on down, look for my face, click on it. We got all of our past episodes there as long as uh, podcast versions of everyone else on the station show. So check that out. And uh, finally, like I said in the last uh, DM segment, Self-care, still time to decide today or tomorrow what you're going to do, build in some rest, a little bit of joy and pleasure. This is really an important part of mental health. I want people to be centering their day around their mental health. Such a new paradigm in a world that usually doesn't care about that, but has no problem legitimizing and centering physical health and physical impairment. Our mental health matters too. Be kind with yourselves, be kind with those around you. Have a good rest of your night. As always, thanks for hanging out and uh, have a good rest of your night.